I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. Today I am joined in Los Angeles, California by my co-host Joe from back in our hometown of London. And as usual, we have a very special guest for today's podcast. He's a Mackham who, during his illustrious playing career, represented the local club of his youth, Sunderland. He's even played for their bitter rivals, Newcastle, as well as other famous clubs like Chelsea and the infamous Crazy Gang that was Wimbledon in the late 90s. Not to mention being an absolute club legend at Luton Town, where he's still involved today as their chief recruitment officer. During his playing days for the Hatters, he also earned a couple of caps for the England national side too. In between hanging up his boots and his current role at Luton, today's guest also enjoyed a career in coaching and management throughout the noughties and the teens. We welcome Mick Harford to the United Mates Football Podcast. Mick, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being our guest. And how are you doing today? No, thanks for inviting me. Absolute honour to be on there, yeah. I'm fine. The weather's been great here in England. It looks like the weather's turned now, so uh, I'm great, thanks. Lovely. Yeah, I'm hoping for some good weather today. I'm actually going to go and try and catch some waves. I've just gotten into surfing, so that's what I'm going to get up to after this. Joe, um, as we record on Tuesday, the 1st of June, of course, it's the beginning of a new month, and seemingly we're drawing closer to the beginning of a new era at your club, Tottenham Hotspur. I know that you're very much in the bring potch back camp, so I wanted to ask you a quick fire question before we get into more conversation, and that's if you can only have one of them at the club, would you have Pochettino or Kane? Tough question, because I love Pochettino. He's my favourite Spurs manager ever, but I, you've got to go with Harry Kane. A generational striker. Um, I don't think I'll ever see a striker as good as Harry Kane play for Tottenham again. So, yeah, I think I'd have to choose Harry Kane. But I'm going to be greedy and hopefully ask for Pochettino back sooner rather than later too. We'll see. Maybe I'll get lucky over the next few days. But yeah, um, good evening, Mick. Um, as Kai said, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast tonight. And we always start the podcast with an icebreaker question for our guests. So we'll obviously have one for you. In your time as a footballer, you were notorious for being a bit of a hard man, um, somebody that you wouldn't really want to mess with. And as a player, you probably dread going into a 50-50 challenge with. So we want to take away this hard man persona for a second. And because we kind of think at the United Mates Football Podcast that we're all big softies at heart at the end of the day. So we had a look on your um, Twitter page, actually, and we saw there was an image that you shared that you were quite moved by. Um, it was a young Luton Towns fan's efforts to raise money for the club. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a really you know, nice message um, that you received. So um, on that note, what we want to ask you is, um, what is something that's a little bit obscure that tends to leave you in tears? So we'll give you a bit of time to come up with an answer. I think my answer, aside from chopping onions, which is a bit of an easy, easy um, giveaway, is um, 
watching the old highlights of Spurs beating Ajax from a couple of years ago, Morris scoring the last minute goal. That that gets me in tears every time. But yeah, before we go to Mick, Kai, what about you? What gets you in tears? Moving away from football for a moment, personally, something that gets me a bit emotional typically is cartoon movies. Disney always tend to get me. So um, I think when I was a kid, Lilo and Stitch was one that reduced me to tears. Otherwise, more recently, Coco from Pixar. I think for about the last 15 minutes straight of that movie, I was crying my eyes out. But, you know, very very touching. If there's music involved uh, as well, that, that tends to get me going. Joe, have you ever, you ever cried during a Disney film? Yeah, no, certainly. Um, I think when I was little, the, the classic Bambi scene got me. But no, I, I watched Coco at Christmas. was great. Very emotional. Remember Me is a great song in that. But um, Mick, we've given you a little bit of time to think. Is there anything that tends to leave you in tears? Well, I'm, I'm down the same line as you guys, really, because, I mean, I do watch a lot of films, a lot of movies. Uh, I'm a bit of a sucker for the uh, for the emotional finish, you know, the, the Forrest Gump or the, or the mm-hmm. Gladiator, or as good as it gets, you know, those those type of films which really get me. And my son's renowned for giving me a bit of stick for being emotional and crying and wiping my eyes whilst he's looking around the corner looking at me. So, uh, so yeah... A good film, a good film is uh, makes me very, very emotional. Good ending. Yeah, Forrest Gump. What, what a film! And I think yeah. you know the old, the old saying. What is it? A strong men cry. So, I think your son maybe needs to give you a bit of a break as it is. But <laughs> moving on from uh, things that yeah might reduce us to tears and back to football. Um, Mick, you're someone who's been a servant to the game professionally now for over forty years in one way or another, and I can only assume that your love for football must run very deep. So I believe that when you were younger, you nearly went down the route of becoming a plumber before you joined your first club, Lincoln City. And so I wanted to know, what was it that kept you motivated in pursuing your dream to become a footballer? And kind of where did that dream come from in the first place? What made you fall in love with football when you were a child? Well, the 40 years, as you say, it's, uh, it goes so quickly. And I got into the professional game when I was 18. So it's 42 years now. And it's... Uh, it just it goes like a click of a finger, you know. And uh, coming from where I come from in those times, in the uh, in the sick, well, I was born in '59, the '60s and '70s. You know, it was it was a way out basically, and everyone played football. Everyone played football in the street. Uh, it was very very competitive amongst ourselves as, as kids, and that's all we did. That's all we did before school, during school, and after school. We just played football, uh, and I was fortunate enough to. To get lucky, I left school when I was 15. <clears throat> I became a plumber, but I carried on playing. I had a real, real passion. Uh, my passion was football, but my passion was supporting my hometown club, which was Sunderland. Uh, I had a trial at Sunderland when, Sunderland when I was about 15. I actually played. I played for their boys' teams at the age of 13 and 14 and got another trial a year or so later. And I just thought I wasn't going to make it. So I, I packed in basically for about 12 months and I went on the road and I followed Sunderland home and away. Uh, and just, that was my passion, you know, following them. And a, a friend of mine knocked on my door uh, who played for a good local team in Sunderland, a team called Lanton Street Boys Club. And a few of my old mates were playing for that team. And I thought, oh, they're a good team with these boys playing. So I went along and played with them. Uh, and the manager of that team... Uh, a guy called Norman Alder had a friend who played for Lincoln City and he recommended three of us 
to go down, try law, take us. And the manager come to watch us play, who, which was then Graham Taylor, and he signed us. But I think what stood me in good stead was when I left school at 15 and I was doing plumbing for three years, I knew life was never going to be easy, you know. I knew there were setbacks in life. I knew I knew you're going to get kicked in the teeth. I knew you're going to get setbacks here and there. So <clears throat> as a young boy doing apprenticeship at a football club, I'd more or less done my apprenticeship as a plumber. Uh, and, I, and I'd more or less become a plumber, professional, well, not professional plumber, but to, to, to do jobs on my own. And I had that responsibility. So I'd been, I'd been through the apprenticeship of being a plumber and I took that into my first year at a football club. I knew we had to work hard. I knew how to do the right things and I knew how to listen to people. So overall, myself being a plumber, I think it gave me a slight advantage. Uh, it sounds like um, it probably did. And it also shows the importance of kind of having a plan B, I guess, as well in life, not just kind of focusing strictly on one thing. Plumbers are well paid over here. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Mick, we want to um, obviously want to talk about your playing career. You've spoken a bit about how you um, you got into playing at Lincoln, but obviously Luton Town is a club that, well, you work to right now, but it's also a club you're very much associated with, although, of course, you did play for Lincoln, Newcastle, Bristol City, club close to yeah. mine, and then Birmingham before actually signing for Luton. So, Obviously, when you were at Luton, you played with some really great players, even one of our former guests, Ricky Hill, I know was a teammate yeah. of yours yeah. at Luton. But was there something special about the club that you hadn't experienced previously in your career that potentially ultimately led to you playing so well there? Well, I was, I was going in, obviously, the clubs you mentioned, I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, when, I, when I left uh, Lincoln... Give me a good basis at Lincoln. I mean, Graham Taylor was the manager there. He'd left a bit of a legacy in terms of discipline and stuff and all that, you know, and how to train and what to do. And I've always took that forward. I went on to Newcastle then. It didn't really work out for me. Uh, and I, I believe that I would never be that again. I'll let the crowd get to me at Newcastle a little bit. And uh, I went on to Bristol City, did very well. On to Birmingham, did well then got me the opportunity to go to Luton. Luton was struggling at the bottom of the league. It was a team that was that was struggling, uh, but the team was full of internationals. And within a period of two or three months, the manager, David Pleat, had brought in Peter Nicholas, myself, Dave, uh, Steve Foster and David Priest. And he just brought a bit of a spine in the team. And that's what we all talk about. You know, you need that spine down the middle of the team. And, and Fozzie was our captain, Steve Foster, great captain. Arguably the best player I've ever played with in terms of being a leader and a man. And I think I think me playing with the likes of Ricky Hill, who was absolutely fantastic footballer, uh, very, very talented, should have had more England caps. Brian Steen, one or two other players who were top players, Mr. Thomas, Tim Breaker. I just think it suited me. You know, we could we could mix play up, we could play the feet, we could play long. Uh, it was just a real, real good team. And and Luton were a team the year the years before where they'd win 3-0 or get beat 4-3 or win 5-2 or got beat 6-2. They were one of those teams. Then we became a team that didn't start. We, we stopped conceding goals. You know, Steve Foster would keep his two full-backs uh, tucked in and they're not allowed to go forward until he said so, till the game till the game was settled down and we were in control of the game. And I think that helped a hell of a lot. Uh, 
And we were winning games 1-0 and 2-0 and it was great and all that, you know. And we were still trying to play what we call a Luton way and that attractive kind of football. Uh, so overall, it was we had a good balance, in my opinion, a real good balance at the team. So sticking with Luton, at one point in your career, I know there was some interest from Sir Alex to bring you to, to Manchester United. And actually, before that even happened, while you were at Derby, you scored a deliberate own goal in Luton's favour to help them avoid relegation. So I suppose, were you ever tempted? Was your head ever turned towards the likes of Old Trafford? And what about Luton makes it your kind of spiritual home? Was it a safe a safe place for you? You mentioned earlier with Newcastle, things maybe not working out. Were you sort of a bit shy to, to try that again with United? And would, would you give any warning to players who have the, the temptation of a big step up when really they're settled at, at a club? Someone like Wilfred Zaha, for instance, who, like yourself at Luton, clearly has a, a special place at Crystal Palace. He went to United and it didn't work out, for instance. Do you have any warning to players um, in that vein? Well, in my opinion, you should never turn the opportunity down to get an opportunity to play for, for me, the biggest club in the country. I, I was I was never given that opportunity. I was playing at Luton at the time when Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson spoke to David Pleat. Uh, they didn't want to sell me. The thing about it was years ago was I'd have found out before the manager did, you see, because of the agents and things like that. Where years ago there was no agents, it was manager to manager basically. So I would have found out about that that interest from Sir Alex Ferguson. I would have found out via a third party that Manchester United were interested in me, and it would have been a done deal because you know you you just you just when when the likes of Manchester United come knocking on the door, you can't turn them down. Like and Zaha went there, and he will, I believe, get another move, and it'd be better for it. There's lots of other there's lots of other players. Uh, actually gone to Manchester United. We were talking about a friend of mine this afternoon. You know, Gary Burtles, Alan Brazil. There's hundreds of centre-forwards gone there and failed. But I would have just loved the opportunity to to go, to go and give it a go. Unfortunately, it never happened for me. Uh, Luton is my spiritual home. You're dead right. I really, really got an affinity with the fans. And I love the place. I love the club. I love what it stands for. I love what it means. Uh, it's a real good community club. Uh, but the biggest thing for me is a couple of things. My son was born in Luton. Uh, and the fans, the fans and the people of Luton have been really, really good to me. And I've got a lot of respect for that. And I'll always hold that in high esteem that they've been really good and kind to me. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great consolation if there ever was one. And I mean, there's, there's a reason why a lot of Luton fans see you as, you know, one of their favourite players of all time. What an honour that is. Um, and speaking of honours, um, you actually scored Chelsea's first ever goal in the Premier League, um, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, in your sort towards the end of your career, you'd also represent Coventry, albeit I know it was only once, one goal, one game appearance there, and um, Wimbledon in the Premier League too. So as a player who I guess up until that point had... Um, well played prior to the Premier League kind of existing. How different was it as a player playing in a Premier League game compared to like an old first division game? As a player, did you notice any difference or was it more off the pitch where the the, the changes were apparent? Well, there was no difference really, apart from the basic thing is there was a rule change in 92. 
which means uh, the goalkeepers couldn't pick the ball up on a back pass. And for me, that changed football in terms of the dynamics of the game. And, and it, was, it was arguably the best rule you could ever change because, I mean, I played against, I would say, arguably the best team I've ever played against, Liverpool. And they made it tough for you to get 1-0 up or 2-0 up and you never saw the ball because they could play the ball back to the goalkeeper, pick the ball up, you never saw it. And that, that rule changed everything. That rule changed everything in football. Physicality, everything. The the goalkeeper only had six seconds down onto the ball, so the ball had to be back in play quicker. So you, you had to be a lot fitter, a lot sharper. Uh, but in terms of in terms of any difference in the levels or standards, I would say no. I'd say no. Obviously, the stadium was much better. The pitches become much better because obviously with more money being pumped into the Premier League. So that 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 was the main thing. Going back to what you were talking about with the rule change of the back pass and kind of the dawn of the Premier League. Obviously, we've come close to the dawn of the European Super League recently, and there's been a lot of rule changes in the shape of VAR and, um, you know, changes to handball rules and whatnot. As someone who's still involved in the game, albeit now from the outside a bit, um, what have you made of the changes in football? How would you survive as a footballer in today's age? Think, I, I think personally, uh, I mean, footballers are very clever human beings, you know, and they, uh, in their own in their own way. I mean, we talk, as I said, we speak about it quite a bit, and, and players will adapt, you know, they'll adapt very quickly. And I, I honestly believe the players of yesteryear will would quite easily adapt to the to the circumstances of today. I mean, I I played and I played with and I played against a lot a lot of players who never got near the England team or to international recognition and it used to really surprise me how they never did it, you know, and uh, so there was a lot, a lot of good players and I believe players would would uh, would definitely uh, be able to handle the Premier League situation at the moment. I think some of the, some of the things that they've brought in, I think the, for me, I think, man, VAR, it's, it's, it's a good thing, but it's, 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 how can you be offside if your fingers over the line and stuff like that? It's, it's just a bit, it's a bit, bit crazy, really. I, I really the one I do believe is is a is a true and genuine thing which you should carry on using is the goal line technology, because that I mean that wins and wins and loses your matches. And England might not have won the World Cup with VAR on. I'm sure I don't know, but uh, that's it. <laughs> it's a crazy one. But now that the the game's moving forward, we've all got to move with it. We're we're not. We're not dinosaurs, but I still like to look back on the, the, the times when the pitches were muddy and everyone was getting stuck into each other and people weren't diving around and people weren't falling over themselves and getting cheap free kicks and basically conning the referees. And it was, I just think there's a lot more honesty in yesteryear, a lot more honesty. Mm. On the goal line technology, I suppose, Germany got a bit of payback at the, the World Cup when Frank Lampard scored that goal that clearly was over the line. To be fair, we were trounced on the day. It probably wouldn't have made much of, much of a difference. But Mick, you mentioned it earlier, played for England. You played for your hometown club, Sunderland, and you're a cult hero at Luton. Um, so by all accounts, you know, you had a lot of success as a, as a footballer. But on the flip side, what was the most difficult period in your playing career? Probably in Newcastle. I mean, it's uh, it was a it was a tough gig. I was only I was only 20 years old, and I was going up there as the number nine on my back and following good players. Uh, 
and they, the, the fans demand is their centre-forwards to be a top player. And I, I, I produced in odd games, I scored a few goals, but it never really worked out for me and it got on top of me. And when I left, when I left there, uh, I said to myself and my family, that'll never happen to me again. And, and, it, and it, it worked out for me, really, in a way. So when I look back, being, being a Newcastle player and failing, it, it actually worked out for me, it helped me. But I didn't want to fail, trust me. Being, even being a Sunderland fan, I didn't didn't want to fail, and I felt that's that's been the biggest failure of my career. But the on the flip side, as you say, uh, Arthur Cox, who was the manager of Newcastle at that time, he then became the Derby manager, and he re-signed me. So he saw he saw some faith in me, and I mean, I got so much respect for him for doing that after failing for him and not doing great for him. He was prepared to spend more money on me and take me in as a centre forward at Derby County. Yeah, it's funny how those things work out. With Wimbledon and with Luton coaching for both clubs, it was a bit of a baptism of fire when it comes to ending your playing career and becoming a coach. Two clubs with issues off the field during your time there. And then speaking of fire, you would be charged with putting out fires throughout your managerial career, stepping in as a caretaker manager on several occasions for the likes of Nottingham Forest, QPR and, and Luton as well. Do you see yourself as someone who typically sort of thrives when the odds are against you? And why why were you so willing to take on that pressure again and again when I, I figure most people would probably be overwhelmed to be thrown in at the deep end like that so frequently? Well, I mean, firstly, I, I got the utmost respect for Joe Kinnear. He, he gave me the opportunity for to go coaching with him at Wimbledon. And it was a great experience working under Joe. Uh, I was coming to the end of my career. I was about 38, 39 and I had an Achilles strain and it was just too much and I had to retire. And Joe said, Mick, look, we'll give you another year's contract. Absolutely unbelievable uh, respect for him and the football club for doing that. And I took the under-21 team for about seven, eight months and I got promoted to the first team. Uh, I think Laurie Sanchez left to go to another role and I stepped into that role. So I was absolutely delighted to do that. Uh, and I, I learned I learned a lot from Joe Kinney. You learn a lot from from senior managers and and things like that. And I went along. Joe Joe, unfortunately, had a problem with his heart, and he left the club. And I followed him to Luton about a year later, and still carried on as his assistant. And again, learned from him. And I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the roles with Joe and fighting fires basically. And he was very strong-minded, very opinionated, but had a strong will and. A real, real good, strong manager, you know, old, old type manager. Just let me get on with the coaching, and I mean, he'd, he'd be that Saturday person in the dressing room who, who would, who would come to life basically, and 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 change change whatever he wanted to change on that Saturday afternoon. That's very interesting, and um, obviously speaking about Joe Kinnear then, Nick. But um, in recent years, I suppose, well, I suppose now working with um, Nathan Jones at Luton, but also I know in the past he worked with. Carl Robinson as well. Um, what's it like? What's it like, kind of, with the shoe on the other foot, being the slightly more experienced coach, working with um, a younger guy, even in an assistant manager or manager role? Do you do you enjoy that that role these days, being more of a kind of guiding figure for the people you're working with? I, I love it. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I enjoy being. You know, you take the back seat. I mean, the coaches nowadays hands on. Nathan's a fantastic coach. Loves it. He's got a real sharp eye, good good personality on the pitch, uh, really, really sets things out properly and really enthusiastic. 
has a good structure and a way of way of working. <clears throat> demands puts real demands on the players, and 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 it's it's reaped its rewards, you know, over the, over the last two or three years. So yeah, and, and I've just been out there system myself and Paul Hart. If he, if he needs any help or any any guidance, he comes along. The good thing is about Nathan; he's not frightened to ask. He he thinks what well, you mean, and we test him in in certain ways and ask him ask him and test him what he why is he doing this? Why are you not doing it this way and stuff and all that? And he finds a way of doing it. So it's a good blend. It's a, it's a good blend at the football club at the moment. No, it certainly seems that way. And I guess there's some parallels to be drawn between Nathan Jones and Eddie Howe in many ways, given how well Nathan has done at Luton. He obviously left. Things didn't quite work out at Stoke, but he's come back to Luton and he's um, he's doing a great job again. So I'm sure it'll be interesting to see um, how his career progresses, hopefully taking Luton up to the promised land at some point. But um, let's just talk about your um, your current sort of recruitment role alongside um, the assistant manager job. And obviously... Um, well, there's already been a signing for Luton this year in the form of um, Fred Oyadinma from Wickham. He's obviously had a great season in the Championship for Wickham and has been good for Mill for a lot of years. And I know that that fee was kind of helped by the the, the transfer fund club and the, the Luton Town fans sort of chipping in, which is obviously great to see. But um, I suppose that budgets are, are tight at the best of times, but given um, the last 12 months of the pandemic and everything, um, I imagine there's never been a harder time to recruit players into a competitive league like the Championship. So given the success of players last season, like Kin and Dewsbury Hall, Aloni, um, a few free transfer signings like Jordan Clark and Cal Naismith too, amongst a few others, not just for Luton, which obviously you, I'm sure you'll know about what you want to do, but do you, do you expect this summer to see in the Championship and the Football League a lot more loan and free transfer signings than usual, just given that budgets, I assume, across the, across the board are probably going to be a bit smaller than they would have done in previous years? Well, you're right about that. There will be, I mean, firstly, there will be a lot of players out of contract and there will be a lot of players looking for work. Uh, arguably, more so than any time in any any history of football, uh, because of the pandemic. I think clubs will be cutting squads, they'll be cutting budgets because of the loss they had. You know, going back to uh, our transfer fund, it was a magnificent gesture by the by the by the fans. That's our that's our season ticket money which we've used, which they never asked for back to to sign players, which which myself and all of everyone at the football club. Is very very grateful for and as you said we signed Fred from Wickham Wanderers who I I knew Fred when I was at Millwall and I was doing some scouting there so we hopefully think we've signed a little gem there uh, but now it's it's going to be tough for, for a lot of clubs you know the 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 players are the, the squads are going to be thin the budgets are going to be cut clubs have lost a lot of money I think people on the outside don't don't realise how hard it's been for clubs. In terms of running the club and and dealing with the situation, you know, because when you look at it, you know, you, you look at you look at Rotherham, uh, for instance, and you could arguably say the pandemic got them relegated because of the games they had to play at the end of the season, you know, and if they had about a normal season and never actually some of the players never uh, contracted any of the, the the virus, they might have had a nice clear running and stayed up. So. That was a big, big problem for us. I mean, dealing with that, dealing with the players, and that—that's all 
that that was that was well run by our physio department. So overall, it's it's uh, we are we are still looking for the Dewsby Olds, the Jordan Clarks, the Carl Naismiths, but uh, but the big problem is you can't you haven't been able to watch anyone this season. You can't get out the games. The only games you've been able to watch is arguably the well, it is the last the next three your your next three opponents. So that's that's been going forward. So we haven't had an opportunity as we do, and I'm not just saying that we as a, as a club we. We're out four, five, six times a night, you know, watching football matches, uh, trying trying to collect information on players and, uh, and 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 try and get the right ones for our club. Some of them have been successful, some of them haven't, you know, and that's the way it is. Yeah, I suppose d- despite the issues that you've mentioned, it seems like yourself and other people at Luton Town are putting their best foot forward when it comes to recruitment and sort of brainstorming. And it, it's shown on the pitch with the success that the team has, has had this season. But you mentioned um, a lot of players probably going out of contract this summer. I guess tying it back to the beginning of our conversation, we mentioned plumbing and sort of having having a backup potentially. A lot of players don't have. They're kind of all their eggs in one basket. Um don't have the education, don't have necessarily the formal skill set by the time they're retired or by the time they just can't get a good enough contract to really pay the bills. I think there's been some discussion within the PFA about some formal aftercare um, for these types of players um, to, to make sure that they don't deal with a lot of issues that you might associate with with a career coming to an end, like depression or whatever it is, or just having a hard time getting back into, into the, uh, a job, albeit you know in the game or outside of the game. Do you feel like someone who, you've been a loyal servant to the game and football's given you a lot. You've had you know people who've, who've trusted you to keep you in these positions uh, down the years. Do you feel like there is a, a duty of care from individual clubs or the FA to kind of look after a lot of these players when their playing days do end, if they aren't lucky enough like yourself to find themselves in a role um, off the pitch at a club? 100%. Yeah, you're dead right, yeah. I think, I think, I think the PFA and managers as well who lose their jobs in the LMA and all, all the, all the organisations should, should really look at this because it's a, uh, and obviously the PFA, it's a, it's a big issue, you know, uh, when people lose their jobs. Because it's a, it's it's everyone loses a job at some period of time, but such a high profile and you know the, it's 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 a tough it's a tough gig when you when you lose your job in football like like most like most jobs. But this seems particularly different in terms of how people react to it and all that you know, and they don't see a way back in and the passion people have for football and they want to be in football and they want to work and it seems to affect them a lot more differently. So I believe and understand that all the organisations should get together and, and, and try and make sure that people who are losing their jobs, they're looked after. As, as our football club, if we, we lose our, some of our young boys, they, the boys who don't get retained on on professional contract, we make sure we've got something going forward, that we, there's some aftercare, look after them. So I totally agree what you said, yes. I think everyone should pull together and help the players who are who are not going to get contracts, who are not going to get clubs. Arguably, some of them will drop down into the lower leagues and play lower leagues for a lot less money. But they are the, there will be a, a big, big share of players who, who won't get clubs, who won't get jobs. 
No, you're certainly right, which is obviously a real shame. But, you know, it's good to know that Luton, you know, if players do have to be released, which is the reality of um, football and life, I suppose, that, you know, there is support in place. And we've just got one final question before we end. Um, it's about still on the recruitment side of things. So Brentford obviously just got promoted um, on the weekend to the Premier League and their transfer recruitment strategy, as you will, over the last few years is kind of, akin to a kind of money ball strategy sort of that you know very stats driven um, way of doing things with a kind of Scandinavian edge there um, as you were saying earlier Mick you know it's been difficult to kind of get to games and really scout players as a recruitment department over the last season have um, have stats and kind of online software become a, a greater part of what you do and just generally what is yeah what's your opinion on that kind of that side of recruitment we, we've added to our staff, yeah, we've added. Uh, I'm playing more of a role to, to assist Nathan at the moment and just helping in the in the recruitment side of it. We brought in a data, a data analyst. Uh, we brought in a new scout to a chapel to, to deal with that. So, and I'll assist them and also assist Nathan. But yes, Brentford's a magnificent model. Uh, but, not say but, I mean, congratulations to them. They've done brilliant and well done. But they do sign. They do sign a lot of good gems, a lot of good players who either sell on for good money. But they still have to sign players to get out of that league at ten million pounds. You know, it's not that they're picking up Ivan Tony for five hundred grand or a million pounds. They're paying ten million for him. You know, and obviously he's a massive asset now. So well done to them. And it's 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 a it's a system that we'd all like to do, all like to use. Uh, and I think as you as you go along, everyone's looking for that hidden gem. You know, we we signed a we signed a young player, Elijah Adebayo, uh, who's done fantastic for us coming to the first team. He's actually ahead of where we thought he would be. He's he's it's a typical situation where he's six foot four. He's come in, he's joined in with better players, and he looks a better player already. So hopefully he he could one who could kick on. We we signed one or two good ones, but. You know, the, the model, it's a good model they've got there. And as I said, congratulations to them. And I'm sure a lot of clubs will be following that model now in the future. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will be. And yeah, as you said, Elijah Adebayo, um, he's, he's been playing brilliantly, great signing from Walsall. And hopefully he'll, um, he'll continue to score goals next season. But um, that does bring us to the end of today's podcast. So as always, a big thank you to my co-host, Kaitel. And of course, a special thank you from both of us to Mick Harford. Mick, we hope you've enjoyed being our guest. Um, how can the listeners best follow you? And do you have any messages to the, the Luton Town supporters? Well, I'd just like to thank all the Luton Town fans for the support they've given me down the years. Uh, I'd like to thank their, the loyal support they've given the football club over the last 12, 12 to 14 months in this pandemic. They've sacrificed good money, uh, they've left their money in the football club. I can promise them, myself and Gary Sweet and Nathan Jones, that their money will be well spent. Uh, and it's just, it's just, a, it's been a magnificent gesture for them. Uh, and we played two games this season: one against Preston, one against Norwich. And we had, we had fans in there for the first time, and it made a massive, massive difference. And me, myself personally, cannot wait for the first game of the season to have the fans batting down at Kenilworth Road. It'll be brilliant to see them. I can't wait. Well, thanks again, Mick. It really was an absolute pleasure chatting with you and best of luck to yourself and to Luton Town for the upcoming championship season. 
um, we'll be tagging Mick in, in, in our posts. So if you, if you want to follow him, just look out for our content and you'll, you'll find him on Twitter and whatnot. But um, to those of you listening or watching this podcast, if you have enjoyed it, please do follow or subscribe wherever you found us. Just look out for United Mates Football Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you like to stream your favorite shows. Same name for our YouTube channel. That's United Mates Football Podcast. And you can put some faces to these voices there. Otherwise, uh, you can follow us on our various social media accounts. We're at United Mates FP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, the website is unitedmatesfp.com, where you'll find all of the above content, as well as some great articles written by the United Mates team. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.